This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Good morning. The Sexual Offences Bill going through the doll this week will decriminalise the sale of sex but criminalise the purchase of sex. It's the so-called Nordic model which is supposed to protect prostitutes but make criminals of their clients. But sex workers object to the proposal. Some say this Nordic model has failed and others that sex should be traded legally if that's what consenting adults in a liberal society want to do. But if it's all so egalitarian, why is it only men who want to buy sex? The sex trade. In studio, Nicola Talent is the investigations editor with The Sunday World. Trish Murphy is a psychotherapist, Irish Times columnist and author of Hashtag Love, 21st Century Relationships. And Nolene Blackwell is chief executive of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Um, Nolene Blackwell, could you tell us what this sexual offences bill is trying to do and if you think it actually achieves that? All right. So the sexual offences bill is a really important piece of child protection legislation as its main purpose not maybe the subject of our discussion but it is about protecting children from the online grooming that can happen now with advances in technology. Our last legislation in the area was literally in the last century and it's just totally out of date and not effective for child protection. Into this as well another piece a couple of other pieces have been put in one about protecting the rights of people with intellectual disabilities protecting them from sexual offences in a new way but also giving them the right to have sexual relations and marry which is important and another group of exploited people are being dealt with in the main topic of our discussion Sarah and that is people who are living in prostitution um, and that is a, a new way of looking at people who are prostitutes and who are I suppose for the most part everybody agrees um, a lot of those people and they uh, nobody doubts but that at 80 90% of the people who are prostituting who are in prostitution in Ireland today are exploited in one way or another. Some of them very seriously through being trafficked into Ireland. And as well as my role in the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre where we deal with the uh, principally women who are abused in the course of prostitution but I'm also on the board of the Immigrant Council of Ireland. And about 10 years ago they did a study of... uh, the migrant women who are trafficked into Ireland for the purpose of sex. So mainly people are trafficked into Ireland either for labour or for um, sexual services and just showed how deeply abused these people are in being brought in, in being pimped and owned in Ireland. So there are an awful lot of people, not all women, but principally women, who are in prostitution in Ireland, who are exploited through poverty, trafficking, drugs, whatever. And this bill aims, to get to your question I suppose, this bill aims to stop them being uh, the subject of the crime but to make, to suppress the demand through targeting the purchasers of sex because the aim and the opinion behind the bill, um, which was teased out in a big government committee in 2013 actually, the, the Oireachtas Committee on Justice teased all this out and came to the conclusion that while you try and make um, as many passages out of exploitation for people as possible while you try to protect trafficked women the other way of dealing with this another way of dealing with it is to say the people who buy sex either don't care 
or are reckless about whether somebody is exploited at the far end of it. So criminalise them is the purpose. Right. So uh, there's a lot in it. But say the first thing is that people will say this bill conflates the trafficking and the prostitution. Yeah. So trafficking is illegal anyway. Yeah. So if you're going to focus on the prostitution and this idea of reducing demand by this so-called Nordic model that actually a lot of people have said in Sweden and in Norway and in these countries where they tried this, it did not uh, suppress demand. It Mm. simply uh, drove it further underground Mm. and there's no evidence Mm. demand was Mm. decreased at all. I think we are going to get terribly stuck in statistics if we if we try to say the Germans did this, the Dutch did this and the Norwegians did this. But to go back to the first part of that, Sarah, trafficking is a very specific uh, crime and it there's a tiny number of... In order to be a woman trafficked, the state has to prove that they found the trafficker and they were able to prosecute and convict the trafficker. So very few people are actually charged with trafficking in Ireland. And there's a very grey line between somebody who is trafficked in within that definition and somebody who is smuggled in or um, who is deceived into ending up in prostitution in Ireland. The, the majority are migrant women in Ireland. Um, and so so the whole, so there is no point trying to separate out the, um, the people who are technically trafficked and those who are not. Now, then when it comes down to it, I do think it's very important to, to note that there are arguments against this model of penalising the purchaser. Um, and there certainly are. But there is nowhere in the world that has successfully ended prostitution. Exactly. So, so what do you do So what we say in the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre is we say we need to focus on the human rights of the many women and some men, but mostly women, who are exploited and whose human rights are utterly abused in Ireland through through being sold for sex. So in order to do that, you look at them. We try in the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre to give them the support they need if they manage to escape. But few enough of them manage to escape and come to us. So for the rest of it, how do you stop exploitation and the breach of people's human rights? And one of the things you do is you say to the people who are abusing those human rights, you have to stop doing it. And the best way of them stopping doing it is, of course, to understand that they're dealing with someone who's exploited. But if we cannot convince everybody of that, and and that is the truth, but if people will still insist and not care that there's a 90% chance that the person they're having sex with is exploited and their human rights are abused. If we can't persuade them of that, then the state does have that function to say, you've got to stop doing it because we have to protect the human rights of the victims. Nicola Talent, what does the sex industry in Ireland look like to you? Well, exactly that. I mean, most of the women that appear to be working in the sex industry in Ireland are not there by choice. Uh, They're there largely by economic reasons. Uh, There has been evidence of trafficking and there was a particular case in recent years when um, a pimp was prosecuted in the UK for bringing prostitutes into Ireland from a place in Nigeria. Uh, He had purchased them called Benin City, which is one of the 
uh, the areas of the world that where where a lot of women are sold into um, into sex trafficking, and this individual had actually gone out there to buy women to bring them into Ireland to work in his brothels. They were working um, for no money at all. They were paid in condoms and accommodation and some food. I mean, it was horrific. It was probably the lowest uh, one I have seen. But most women are either, you know, economically, they have to work in it. They're, they're trafficked. They have no support group here. Are they drug addicts uh, or have some sort of an addiction that they're, they're, they're funding through their work? Um, I certainly have never. I've heard the voices I suppose largely the middle class voices saying that, um, you know, they're there by choice and that there's a lot of women there by choice. But I have never, ever met one that is. Well, later we'll be talking to Laura Lee from Northern Ireland, um, who says that she is there by choice. But going back to this idea, so let's say of what the bill is actually trying to do. Mm. So critics have said, for example, that it says that a woman trying to sell sex will not be a criminal. However, if she's loitering on the street, the penalty for that has actually been increased and the Gardaí could still move her on, you know, and that realistically it's not doing what it says it's going to do. Well, to be honest with you, um, and again, from from my memory of the courts, etc., I don't think I've ever seen a woman before the courts charged uh, in relation to prostitution. Now, I have seen people being brought before the co- courts in relation to pimping. I think that probably this legislation won't be actually acted on from a policing point of view. I think it is really more so a message that, you know, it is a criminal offence to buy sex, which might just stop one or two in their tracks on the way to doing so. And it's probably a message to those vulnerable women that are working and men working in the industry that, you know, there is probably help for them rather than, you know, a a criminal prosecution. Right. But do you think criminalising the men who are buying the sex actually does suppress demand or do they just change their behaviour so hide their identity get the women to come to their houses instead of going to a brothel you know behave in ways that actually might put the women at more risk Well again from experience any time that we have investigated the industry um, the men don't really care so they, they don't um, they don't, they do, they always hide their identities. Um, you know, they'll, it's not a, a sort of an industry that you have to hand over a credit card and, and give your name and address. But um, so it's, it's, it is an underground industry anyway. I don't think it's going to change that. Um, I don't think the women will be put at any more danger. I think they'll do what they do and they'll operate it how they do. At the moment, it, it largely operates through rental uh, apartments in the city centre or hotel rooms and the numbers are put up online and men will ring the numbers and an arrangement is made and they come to the apartment or the hotel. It's fairly easy actually always to investigate it because there's very few precautions taken by either side. It just sort of happens. It happens all the time. I remember some but years ago bit, oh, sorry, go on, just yeah. interviewing um, the then uh, Garda chief who was in charge of, of the vice unit which did exist at one point and they had done a bit of an investigation on it and found that one o'clock in the day was the busiest time for uh, men using prostitutes. It was during lunch hour. I can see the look <laughs> on your face. <laughs> this is going to be an anti-men discussion starts now. But yeah, it was during their lunch break they were going out and uh, yeah, you'd imagine it was at night time but no, it was one o'clock. So instead of the, uh, the coffee and sandwich. So if they don't care and if sex workers are saying they don't want this system then why do it? 
Well, I think probably, uh, 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 you know, as we have discussed there, that it is a message from the state that, you know, we have recognised as a civilised um, democratic country that there are people, usually most of the people working in this industry are exploited. And I suppose by bringing in that legislation, we're saying that we do not accept that as a society, that women should be exploited, men should be exploited, or that people should find themselves having to sell sex in this country to, to feed themselves. Or um, Trish Murphy, I'm genuinely not moralistic about sex. I would take a very libertarian attitude. You know, whatever people want to do is up to them once they're not harming another individual. So the the look that I gave Nicola when I heard about the men going out on their lunch break for a bit of sex um, probably shouldn't. It doesn't convey my political views, if you know what I mean. But um, but say, for example, John Halligan, the TD um, junior minister now, he made a point, you know, men can be lonely and in a sexless marriage. You can have men who are disabled or disfigured in some way. It doesn't necessarily make them a terrible person if they have this need and they're willing to pay for it. And surveys have showed that many of them actually do care about the conditions that the woman might be in. But they want sex that badly. Um, Well, I mean, look, all of this is true. Um, You know, there are lots and lots of exceptions. Um, I think... um, I think from the male perspective, what we are dealing with now is uh, an abundance of porn where sex is not with another human being. It's 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 performance and it's a commodity. And the problem then is that that leads on to the the normalization of commodity. And uh, can I can I quote you a great quote from Alan de Botton, who wrote How to Think More About Sex, a lovely little book that everybody should have. Anyway, he says pornographic content providers have exploited a design flaw of the male gender, a mind originally designed to cope with little more sexually tempting than the occasional sight of a tribeswoman across the savannah is rendered helpless when bombarded by continual invitations to participate in erotic scenarios far exceeding anything dreamt of by the diseased mind of the Marquis de Sade. (laughs) So there is a truth in that, you know, in that nowadays uh, boys are online at a very young age um, they don't get much help from any adults around them and therefore by the time they reach the point where they have uh, money th- you know their their sexual cues are often uh, very difficult for them to change um, and so they might find sex quite difficult with a human being they might find that you know the the idea that you have to be vulnerable and flawed and um, failure is part of it is, is might be very difficult. So for them and for all the people who grow up in that, it's very easy to consider that, you know, escorts are paid for sex is um, a kind of a natural yeah, ongoing thing. Yeah, but prostitution predates um, the oh, Internet. Yeah. yeah. You know, so there's a demand there independent mm. of think, the porn yeah. industry. Um, and again, I suppose some of the, the, the statistics on this is that men, pay, you know, pay for porn, they pay for sex and women pay for romantic books and magazines about, you know, celebrity relationships. So the chances are that women are more into, now not all, but women are more into, you know, something more than the sex, uh, whereas men would love to have sex without complications. Yeah, somebody um, said to me once they're not paying for the sex, they're paying to leave. Oh, that's so cruel to men. (laughs) So cruel. I mean, I think that's really unfair. Um, But I think there is, you know, there's something about, you know, um, the desire for relationship and the looking for uh, something more meaningful. And for men that, you know, sex in in, in and of itself is is the reward, is the thing. Um, And is there anything wrong with that? Like going back to John Halligan's point and this 
you know, mm. why criminalise them for that? Well, I'm not going to answer the why criminalising, but is it is there anything wrong with it? I think we're primed that way. You know, our, our brains are wired and it's going to take a long time for that to adjust. I mean, I would argue that when we change how we have sex and how we negotiate it and uh, we change the world. You know, I do think that's true because we still have this uh, idea of domination and submission and it's a very strong one. Um, it's in every fantasy. So until that kind of shifts in some way, uh, and that's going to take a long time, we're, we're, we're stuck in it. Nicola? I was just going to say, I think John Halligan's view of this sort of lonely man that is having sex because, you know, he needs love and is going to look after the woman or is concerned about them is fairly naive. Um, you know, anybody who has sort of seen the cold face of the sex industry, it's not like that at all. Um, you know, in, in certain places, certainly I have been in, in the Philippines, I have been to Thailand in places where, you know, sex is for sale so blatantly. It is marauding groups of men, young men on stag parties out to see how many women they can have sex with in one night. Um, certainly in the places like the Philippines where, uh, you know, there has been a naval bases and stuff and, and the prostitution is built up around that. You have ex- army, ex-military from all over the world coming on cheap package holidays and you look at them and to be honest with you from from what I have seen of them most of them are, are, are some sort of social misfits nearly and you know they're walking down these red light districts with two and three beautiful young girls, childlike girls on their arms and they're having this fantasy holiday that they think these women want to have sex with them. I mean that's the reality of it. It's not some poor old guy down the country who just needs a little cuddle. <laughs> Nolene, I do know men who use prostitutes and um, they're not marauding monsters. They're, no. they're middle class men and they, they just really want sex and, and, and they can't yeah. get it from the women that they know. Well, well, there's two bits to that. First of all, um, I, I do think also about the, the Minister Halligan's yes, yeah. scenario. The problem with it is what we have outlined earlier is that it is not this highly consensual arrangement between two people looking for some kind of a short term relationship. And um, there is the exploitation of one by the other. And that's why it comes back to the harm. There is no doubt there is kind of um, a sense that if people go away in a your middle class men going away on a golf weekend or something like that, that casual sex with a prostitute is part of what they are going to get when they go away like that. Now, again, let's come back to what we are trying to focus on here. And that is there is somebody whose rights, whose health and whose is being harmed in the result of that. So this is literally about trying to turn it the other way and just say, let's stop the exploitation. And while some sex workers, I do think there possibly are the odd people who really are very happy and know exactly what they're doing um, and you do and they're very articulate when they come up about it an awful lot of those who were in prostitution talk about the horror of it as well and to hear them talk to hear about you know the third generation of of women being told you, you will make your money on the flat of your back when they're seven years old that kind of awful harm that's visited on children, young girls and women. Prostitutes, those who've come out of prostitution will talk about it as well, the harm. So it's a very fraught area. But if you just go back and say, 
are, is, are we okay with having possibly hundreds of people in Ireland, mostly women but some men, who are exploited and harmed by middle class men mm. or whatever, you know, mm. as, as you raise that. But it's not just that, by people who are just careless, disregarding or even knowingly exploiting and, someone. And who won't be stopped even though what they're doing has been made a criminal act. But but it, but you, you have to have a whole lot of things, Sarah, going on. It's like um, raising the price of cigarettes has not stopped everyone smoking, but it has stopped some people smoking and you have to do the health bit as well. Like there was a campaign, a great campaign, where men stood up with a placard saying real men don't buy sex. So you do a whole lot of things at a time. Some men will not risk a criminal charge and a criminal conviction through um, exploiting a prostitute. And that's one of the approaches. And really, this bill has has the power to actually protect children better and to protect some women. So the Dublin Rape Crisis and would say go for it. OK, um, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking to a sex worker, Laura Lee, one of the 98% of sex workers in Northern Ireland who opposes the criminalisation of the purchase of sex. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. Welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about the sex trade this morning. In studio, Nicola Talent is the investigations editor with The Sunday World. Trish Murphy is a psychotherapist and Irish Times columnist. And Nolene Blackwell is chief executive of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. And on the line now is Laura Lee. She's a sex worker and advocate with Sex Workers Alliance Ireland. And she has just won a judicial review of the Northern Ireland version of the Sexual Offences Bill, which is called the Human Trafficking Act, which also criminalises the purchase of sex. Um, Laura, why are you taking this review against the um, purchase, the criminalisation of the purchase of sex? Good morning. Um, I'm taking this review because it is putting sex workers in grave danger on a daily basis. Um, it's not letting us work together in safety, which which is crucial, um, and which is being overlooked, I'm afraid, in the proposed legislation in the Republic of Ireland as well. And will you just explain that bit about the benefits of working together? Well, sex work is the only occupation I can think of where women are compelled to work on their own. Um, And unfortunately, would-be attackers, people that would do us harm, are only too well aware of that fact. And they utilise that loophole in the law to exploit us. So while the sex industry isn't by its very nature inherently dangerous, it's made uh, dangerous, rather, by the laws that surround it. Now, um, some people have said, look, you might be, you know, an empowered woman and you're choosing this particular trade. But the majority of women in that industry do not. So while you might be put out by these laws, the the greatest benefit will be to those who are vulnerable and don't have any choice about it. And they must be protected. Well, it's not about being put out by anybody's laws or anybody's morals. It's about being placed in grave danger. And whether you have made the choice to enter the industry or are entering the industry um, out of poverty, out of benefit cuts because you're in direct provision, because you're about to be made homeless, whatever the reasons you've entered the industry, you have the right to work in safety. And that's what's central to this debate. And what else makes it dangerous for women about criminalising the purchase of sex? What are the nuts and bolts of that? 
Well, what we have found in the north of Ireland and what is true in, in any other country that has brought this system in is that when you criminalise the purchasers of, of sex, what you do is you drive them away from any form of detection whatsoever. So what that looks like is that they won't identify themselves when they're making bookings at all. Um, whereas before they used to use online screening systems so that we had a fair idea of who we were meeting. And really, that protected both parties so they could check who we were and we could check who they were. What it's also done is it's closed down the channels of communications between those buyers and the police. So before, they used to come forward and report all the time if they had seen something untoward or if they had visited the premises and they weren't terribly happy with what they had seen. Now, effectively, they're admitting to the uh, commission of a crime and so they won't. And they won't even, some of them will tell me on a third-party basis. But there's no doubt in my mind that in making these people more anonymous, it's placing us in more danger. What about then arguments that, you know, no woman freely chooses this trade? And, you know, if it reduces demand for the trade, then that's a good thing overall for women. Well, the first thing to say on that is that it doesn't reduce demand. So it's not effective. And the law effectively is targeting the wrong group of people. What we need to be doing in Ireland, in my, in my opinion, is targeting those who do coerce, who do traffic, and who do place these women in precarious positions. Those aren't the people who pay consenting adults. And how do you do that? So, for example, in the Sexual Offences Bill, which is going through our Oireachtas, you know, they're, they're trying to decriminalise the women on their own who are soliciting sex, but making the brothel keeping illegal. And that would obviously be an effort to try and target the pimps and target the traffickers. You know, if you don't want them to target the brothel keepers, because that also targets the women who are working together, how do you target the pimps? Well, I do think we need some clarity here on the the nature of the bill that's going through. Uh, First of all, it's it's a myth that the bill in any way, shape or form decriminalises sex workers at all. As a matter of fact, with outdoor street sex workers, the uh, fine has been doubled. So what they've done is, although on the face of it, they have decriminalised solicitation in the forthcoming bill, that's a red herring because under the Public Order Act, They've increased the fine from 500 euros to 100 euros, to 1,000 euros, I'm sorry, and also six months in jail. So it's actually a lot steeper. In terms of brothel keeping, what we need to bear in mind here is that a lot of people will think of a brothel in terms of a man in in charge um, and several women working for him. Actually, the legal definition of a brothel is any two sex workers working together in one premises. And they do not even have to be there on the same day. So actually, the brothel-keeping laws are targeting women working together in safety. And what we see in places like New Zealand, who decriminalised in 2003, is that when you decriminalise the brothels, you open back up those channels of communication. And actually, in New Zealand now, we've had several sex workers go forward and challenge their managers under their um, equality and employment legislation and win. Wow. 
Um, and what do you say to those people who are proposing this bill, even though, say, for example, in Northern Ireland, 98% of sex workers surveyed said they didn't want this kind of system where the purchase of sex is criminalised. What do you say to them? I say to them that they should listen to sex workers. 98% of us in the north of Ireland said we didn't want the increased criminalisation. And that's because we knew the damage that it would do and we were right. And I call on the Minister for for Justice to stop saying that the proposed bill decriminalises sex workers. She's very well aware of the fact that it doesn't and it's grossly misleading to the Irish public. Okay, and Laura, finally, why do you do it? Why are you involved in this trade? I do it right now because it suits my particular needs. Um, I'm studying, I'm a single parent, I'm also an advocate, so I'm incredibly busy. Um, It suits my lifestyle, I can run my own diary and I answer to nobody. So right now, at this moment in time, it suits my needs. That was Laura Lee, sex worker and uh, advocate with the Sex Workers Alliance of Ireland Group. And she's won a judicial review of the Human Trafficking Act in Northern Ireland that also seeks to criminalise the purchase of sex. So, Trish Murphy, I think one interesting point that Laura is making is this idea that um, that advocates, perhaps like Nolene, are robbing women off their agency. That if they say, you know what, I have to earn some money. I don't want to do mushroom picking. I don't want to be a cleaner. This is something that I can do that I think I can be in control of and that suits me, as Laura said, at my lifestyle at this point in my life. And it is paternalistic and patronising to come along and say to somebody like her, no, we think actually this is bad for you. Um, I mean, she sounds like a very capable person, which is fantastic for her, but that doesn't reflect the truth for most people. And sadly, that's the case. It would be wonderful and we could all say consenting adults can do this and charge if they want to. But that's not the reality for most people. And we have to protect the vulnerable in our society. Um, And we do. That's what that's what our society does. Um, And I'm afraid she's on the very minority in, in, in this case. Um, I do think there are, I mean, and I certainly have come across these wonderful women in the sex industry who are kind and generous to men. And I really have. And I, you know, I don't think these men would have as good lives without them, but they're very rare. Um, And, you know, a small case like that doesn't make a case for the whole, the whole of the industry. It couldn't. So well done to her. And I'm glad she's got a voice. And I think it would be wonderful if we were sitting here and we had men's voices and if we had more women in the industry's voices and we don't. And that's a problem. Um, But unfortunately, she's the minority. Why do you think women don't pay for sex? Um, I I think that's fascinating. I think um, women pay for lots of things. I mean, they probably keep the economy going, but they don't pay for sex. Uh, Not much anyway. Um, And I think it's something to do. Now, let me think about this. I think the way women feel attractive is is that the way they feel desired. Um, And they need to have that aspect in order for them to to want sex or to for desire to work in them. And you don't do that if you're paying for it. It's the opposite. You're desiring them. And really, it doesn't really work like that. You know, so I'm the one who wants to feel attractive and you have to come to me to make me feel good. Um, so I'm hardly going to pay you to tell me I feel good because I know you're lying. So I think there's lots and lots of interesting things about it. And why doesn't that matter to men? Yeah, well, because because men's cues are very different because they need to be attracted to something. Um, beauty, health, uh, vitality, um and I think for a lot of men, I think sex has become quite difficult. Um, 
they now worry about their performance. They worry about being written up on Facebook. Um, their cues are very performance based and they struggle with intimacy. And I know that from my work. So I think a lot of them, you know, it's easier. Um, it's less threatening for them to pay for it. Um, and just going back to that idea of. Do you want to cure men of this then? <laughs> and and is it so a mm. is it something mm. we should want to cure and b how on earth would you go about curing them of it if we think it's something so dreadful that must be eradicated um i know that when young men are you know interviewed about for example their porn use um a lot of them will talk about how the, the education they got about sex or they got about, well, actually, I don't think they got any in, uh, education about love, um, but they get a lot of education about fear and about protection and sex. But they don't get any education in what relationships are about in what how to end them, how to be in them. And I think we need to look a lot more, talk a lot more about sex, what it means to us. I mean, most couples don't really talk about it. They don't really talk to their kids about it. Um, and, you know, we, we, we arrive probably at the same kind of binary thing that we've always arrived at, which is, you know, fear on one side and performance on the other, leaving pleasure completely out of it. So I think we it's going to take a long time for us to to get comfortable. And I really do believe that if we do more on that, um, not afraid of the topics, then we might begin to shift things like, for example, you know, the whole consent idea. Uh, imagine talking about consent. Imagine if on TV before they hopped into bed, somebody said, um, you know, are you really OK with this? <laughs> Can you imagine mm. now? Wouldn't that be different? Imagine consent was a normal piece of conversation. Nicola, it seems to be sort of the underlying thing in it seems to be empowerment or power or whatever. And we talked earlier about women don't tend to have sex just to have sex, but empowered women do. You know, um, and maybe just that we're evolving and and, you know, that the, the everything is, is shifting slightly for men. Um, you know, men buying sex is largely about the power and what they feel. They feel that that no matter where they are in society for that hour or half hour, or whatever it is they can afford, they are the big cheese. And I mean, that's really seems to be what buying sex is all about. So, you know, maybe women don't lack that uh, or maybe maybe women lack that or, sort of no, insecurity. Lynn, if we flip it and look at on the other side, if women's romantic ideals mm. and this need to be wanted and desired, is that something women need to get over? And maybe we should chill out a little bit about it. But but, but I think aren't, aren't we doing all right? Aren't we if we're moving the world to a place where there is more focus on the harm done to people and a recognition that at the other end of it, there is a real live human being with their own rights and their own dignity that is being exploited and harmed. Isn't that the right way for all of us to be going? I mean, I was just thinking as as we were talking here, it was 1990 before the law recognised that a man could rape his wife. Until then, the wife was so much a piece of 
of owner as something owned by the husband that rape was inconceivable literally within it so that's only 25 years ago that we had moved on that far now I think we're moving on to the next stage of recognising the dignity of every single human being and this is a huge there is a, a big step for us to take and that's why in some ways you have to say even if there are some people within the sex industry who are empowered. It is the second, next to drugs and firearms, it is the second biggest source of international crime money in the world, the trafficking in human beings for labour purposes and sex purposes. So like drugs, people say the answer to the war on drugs is just legalise it because actually the war on drugs does more harm. If you legalise prostitution, then actually that might reduce the trafficking and the harm done from yeah, the illegality but, 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 of it. But they will say that about some drugs, maybe. They won't say it about high-grade heroin or whatever. So, uh, so, so there is a harm in drugs. There is a harm in firearms. I mean, the states would say legalise, uh, you know, so many people would say legalise firearms and let everybody have them. That's not the approach we're taking here. So it's really, I think, let's get us all to a stage where we're respectful of everybody we have interactions with and intimate interactions with. And to pick up on Trisha's point, if we could be talking about consent more. So the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre really um, wants to champion this whole idea of people understanding better what proper consent means. But when our volunteers go out to schools to give talks to second level students and the rest of it, the students, a lot of the questions are coming straight from whatever porn site they're looking at on their phones. So there is still a big distance to go in that whole area of respect. But that's what we should be aiming for. Trish Murphy, Mick Mollis made a great point when he was making a speech on this bill on Thursday in the Dáil. He's uh, a privacy point that a citizen has a right to a private life life, including a private sexual life. And in fact, that was how the decriminalisation of homosexuality happened, that David Norris took his case under Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights to do with privacy. Do you see in any way um, sale of sex coming under a privacy right? Oh, gosh. (laughs) Um, No, I, I think because it's commodity and it's for sale, it's a different thing to your private sexual life. And I do think people have a right to privacy. Of course they do. And public shaming is probably no way to change things. I really don't know if that's the right way to go about creating a genuine difference and dignity that we're talking about. Um, but something that's for sale is not is not is not private. It's public. And the thing about men being in charge and women mm. wanting to be desired. How does all of that square with the huge popularity of Fifty Shades of Grey? The Fifty Shades of Grey. Yes. I actually read it. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> I read it. God, it's a shame that it wasn't a better book. Um, yeah. I think it's because uh, it focused a lot on on uh, women's sexuality and fantasy. And it's fantasy. We're entitled to fantasies and our fantasies are not politically correct. And it's OK not to have them be politically correct. Um, I don't think any or very few women would actually want that to happen to them in real life. Um, but they're allowed to have the fantasy. And so that's fine. I don't see a problem with that, really. But I do think that the internet has created a possibility to make our fantasies real um, because we can buy those and that now that is very difficult and can be very very traumatising for everyone Um, and we have to be aware of that and I think we're not talking about it enough and therefore people are getting caught and getting traumatised by acting out their fantasies and finding that it's it's very uh, humiliating for them and not at all what they thought it would be Okay we'll be back with more after these Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108.
And welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about prostitution this morning and criminalisation of the purchase of sex. And in studio is Nicola Talent, investigations editor with the Sunday World, Trish Murphy, psychotherapist, Irish Times columnist and author of Hashtag Love, 21st Century Relationships. And Nolan Blackwell is chief executive of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Um, Nolan, can we go back to this idea, though, that while the aims of the bill mm. to decriminalise the sale of sex but criminalise the purchase of it in order to protect women won't actually achieve it. So for example people or organisations who are against this model include Human Rights Watch, UN Women, UN AIDS, the World Health Organisation, the Global Commission on HIV, Amnesty International and the International Labour Organisation. Yeah. Like these are people who know what they're talking about and they're saying yeah. this isn't good. My credentials with Amnesty are good. I was the chair of the Irish section of Amnesty for a while and um, and Amnesty have their own views all along the way. So what the focus is in these cases is on the safety of women who are going into this of their own accord. What they are missing and actually, I think it's Amnesty and the Sex Workers Alliance that have been strong in Ireland. They're the people and they quote all the other organisations that you quoted there a tiny bit selectively, but we won't go there because they're not here. But um, what what they focus on are the people who want to to sell sex. That's fine for them. I think the issue is that they fail, as indeed has happened before, they fail to deal with the fact that most people are exploited by everybody's admission. Most people who are living in prostitution in Ireland are heavily exploited and are vulnerable. They're subject to all the things that Nicola mentioned before, be it addiction, be it being brought into the country illegally, be it being trafficked, be it being owned by somebody else. So until such time as we actually try and protect those people, I think we have to say to the others, you have to wait. So, for instance, if I wanted to sell my kidney, I might make a decision about it. Actually, I'm not allowed to sell my kidney in Ireland. Even if I wanted the money, I was clear about why I wanted it and did everything. I'm not allowed to do it because of the level of harm that that kind of organ trade does. It does happen in other countries. So it's by way of analogy. What the bill is trying to do, what it aims to do, is to identify that the women mostly, some men, but mostly women, at the heart of this are people who are deeply and desperately exploited. And to try and say, we will not make you a criminal because this is what you were doing, but we will try to suppress and reduce demand by making the sanction on the purchaser who neither knows nor cares that you were exploited. So in a sense, I do think that um, I think they're really unsympathetic to the to the rights of of the people who are exploited. That's my problem with amnesty. And Nicola, do you see no case that perhaps women recognising that this demand can never be reduced, have the right and sort out the economics and the hygiene and the health and the safety and run this for themselves and not be criminalised for that? Well, the women who are sort of empowered within the industry are really the high end, um, you know, women who are charging 2000 and more uh, per night. And they are they're 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 working quite, I suppose, as much as happily as you could say within that industry. But I think 
a lot of these lobby groups that have come forward to fight the cause of women, and I say that in general in the prostitution industry, there has been evidence that they um, have uh, some of those lobby groups. And I think in actual fact, Amnesty itself found itself bringing in advisors who were making money from the sex industry. And this is a big problem. A lot of the, the people who are making money out of it have kind of come together as the voice of the industry when really 98% of women probably in the industry are exploited and don't have any voice. Right. OK, well, I'm afraid we have to leave it there for this morning. Many thanks to you all. Ronan Bratnock researched, Aoife Breen produced, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.